DBHDD is reminding Georgians to ask their doctor about alternatives to opioid pain medication. Alternatives such as over-the-counter medications and physical therapy can be used to manage pain. More information at opioidresponse.info. So glad to have all of you with us for today's Political Rewind. What a week it's been in politics, both here in Georgia, of course, and in Washington, D.C. So we have a full agenda uh, on the show today and a great panel to talk politics with. We start with Jim Galloway, the lead political writer for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. You read him on Wednesdays and Sundays in the uh, newspaper itself. And you oversee Jim Galloway, the Political Insider blog at AJC.com, which, we should say, is a creature of your own creation. You founded the Political Insider blog. and Yeah, back about 2001. And you get up early every morning and assemble all of these great items about politics here and uh, across the country. And yet I can still show up here at 2 o'clock and... Unbelievable. And why am I the only guy in a, with a tie in this room? I, I didn't wear one because you've always said you don't want to wear one. But anyhow, <laughs> be that it is, as it may, Jim, we're glad, of course, that you're here. Um, across the way from Jim Galloway is uh, Eric Tannenblatt. Eric Tannenblatt is a longtime Georgia Republican. He has worked for presidential presidents and presidential candidates going back, uh, George H.W. Bush, Paul Coverdale, even before that. You were a big Mitt Romney advisor when uh, Mitt Romney ran for president and I assume helped out on his Senate campaign as well. Sure, sure. Uh, Also, you were Sonny Perdue's chief of staff during uh, Governor Perdue's first term in office. Anything else we should add? Oh, and you also are the global government affairs head of Denton's, the world's largest law firm. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> Next Don't to you. you Next to you, we're so happy uh, to have back after way too long an absence, Beth Shapiro. Beth Shapiro has been a consultant, a pollster uh, in the uh, business world, much of her work for nonprofit organizations, but also spent a good period of time doing political consulting and political polling. You decided to get out of that racket and try to enjoy life in retirement at least a little bit more. Uh, I'm enjoying life in retirement a lot more. Uh, <laughs> and, I, and yet every time that you think you've escaped, we pull you back in. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, it's the magnetic pull of the other panelists. I just can't stay away from you. I just can't quit you guys. What could well, I say? It's, way, it's been way too long, and I was so glad when I got a note from you saying, I'm ready for action again. I'm, so I'm back. Thanks. Put me in, Coach. Um, and Caesar Mitchell is with us. Caesar Mitchell, a former uh, president of the Atlanta City Council, candidate for mayor. Uh, at one point, we think there may be some politics in your future, Caesar Mitchell, but you'll let us know when you're ready to about the possibility of that. Caesar, also, we have Denton's in the house, a partner <laughs> at Denton's, the world's largest law firm. Hi, Caesar. Hey, man. How you, you doing? doing well? I'm doing great. Is there, an elect- is there an election in your future? Do you want to use today to tell us about yeah, it? Yeah, yeah, there, I, I did. yeah, I did. I, I made a commitment that I'm going to, you know, vote in every election coming up. <laughs> <There you laughs> All right. Um, I want to start uh, going a little off script here uh, because I think we are really gone down the rabbit hole as if impeachment hasn't been... Uh, 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 caught, ca- captured our attention for so many reasons uh, already. Today, Jim, 
The White House announced the addition of some new lawyers who are going to be defense attorneys for him in the impeachment trial. We, we knew Jay Sekulow would be there. We knew Pam Bondi, former attorney general of Florida. She's a big Trumpite. Today, we got uh, Ken Starr. I don't know about you, but when I saw that, it spun my head around. This is a guy who prosecuted the case against Bill Clinton right. in the last Right, and Ellen Dershowitz, of <laughs> and course. And Dershowitz is but, joining but, but, the team. But to your point about Ken Starr, uh, I, I kind of liked what Patrick uh, Leahy said, yeah. said, said about this, that you know, here you have the guy who, who prosecuted a very thin impeachment case coming to defend a what, what, he, what Lee, uh, Leahy called a strong impeachment case. And he said, it was just kind of weird. <laughs> <laughs> Anybody else struck by that the way I was? I mean, I'm, I certainly remember. It was Starr. Starr's investigation of what started as Whitewater, which led him to Monica Lewinsky, which led to the president's impeachment, Beth. But I, 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 I think you, when you're putting together a, a defense team, you want to get people on there that have some knowledge of the, uh, of the experience of, of the issues that are, that are being uh, prosecuted. You know, it's kind of like uh, former prosecutors who then go and work as, as defense attorneys because they understand the prosecution side and can uh, perhaps craft more effective defenses knowing that. So I'm, I'm, I'm not surprised. Everything old is new again. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it. Go ahead, Eric. No, I was going to say this is a serious matter. And, you know, he's got a serious team. You know, you know what's interesting? Go ahead. Let's bring the lawyer in, yeah. into this here. I mean, because because <laughs> because it's sense. because you know, I in in a way, Star and Dershowitz are kind of celebrity lawyers. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure that, that you know they're, they're they're I'm sure Trump saw those saw them on TV. Well, I think I think <laughs> uh, well well thanks for including the lawyer in this, but I think Beth really made a really good point. I mean, when you're talking about something as serious as this. Uh, you want to have folks who have experience in this, not just a good lawyer, a great lawyer who knows how to go to trial, but someone who knows the process. They know the history. They know the tendencies of of, of, of the body that will be the jurors. And I think those uh, the selection, at least, of Ken Starr, you know, fits that. And I guess I can't help but uh, uh, speculate that maybe their star power also helps to add a certain theater to this that Trump believes might benefit him. Yeah, I, it's uh, the Dershowitz choice is interesting. Dershowitz has defended the president, he cl- says on constitutional grounds, any number of times since Trump went into office. Uh, but talk about a celebrity defense lawyer. He's participated in some of the most important uh, criminal trials in, in the last couple of decades. What's interesting, uh, Caesar, about Dershowitz is he says he voted for Hillary Clinton. He did not vote for Donald Trump. Uh, but he believes and has believed for some time that um, the, this impeachment is not being, has not been conducted in, a, in an appropriate and constitutional way. So he's, he seems to be a good fit for this. Yeah, I, I think it conveys seriousness on the part of, I mean, you know, on the flip side, it's seriousness on the part of, 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 of President Trump. Uh, when you get someone like Dershowitz involved, particularly to the extent that he may not necessarily be a part of your political party. Right, right. You know, uh, but you say this guy is serious enough. And but you're also and, getting and, media savvy uh, yeah, people. And I, I do think that's True. important because uh, Trump has to have people that uh, will communicate well, come across well on Trump um, on Fox News Network. Mm-hmm. And and I think that, um, <clears throat> excuse me, that, that Dershowitz star uh, 
uh, seculo bring that kind of, of savvy? Yeah, um, a couple points, Bill. Number one is we should also recognize that what Trump didn't do, what the White House didn't do, and that is they didn't reach out to Doug Collins and, and right. the House or Jim Jordan, uh, uh, who were kind of the most flamboyant uh, defenders of the president uh, during the House inquiry proceedings. Yeah, that's interesting, actually. I'm glad you brought it up because, uh, Eric, um, Doug Collins made it pretty clear that he would be more than enthusiastic about being part of the defense team in the Senate. And and apparently there was a time when, there, very recently, when the White House thought it would be great to have him. Mitch McConnell, we're told, behind the scenes pushed back and didn't that's not the kind what works in the judiciary committee of the house does not necessarily work well on the floor of the US Senate in an impeachment trial. Yeah, I think I think I think the team that the president put together is appropriate. I think when this was in the house, they were the right people to defend the president in the house, but now that it's in the Senate, I think he needed the the horses that he assembled. Yeah. I mean, this I, is a trial. I mean, this right. is not a hearing or an, you know I think Mitch McConnell is also trying to protect Georgia's uh, newly appointed senator, Kelly Loeffler. Uh, I, I think that the uh, Republican Party is uh, uh, rightfully worried about Doug Collins jumping into that race and challenging her. And having Collins as an impeachment manager would have given him a, a Even higher profile. Uh, not that he's not taking advantage of every news opportunity there is mm-hmm. anyway to to be on television defending the president, but it still would have given him a higher platform. Especially given the fact that we're in this weird situation where 100 U.S. senators have to sit in their chairs and be quiet. Yeah, yeah. Without Um, their cell phones. Yeah, which is not going to help Leffler, you know, in the same way that it's not helping the senators who are running for president as they try to make a closing argument in Iowa. Leffler's going to miss at least a couple weeks of being out there Uh, campaigning for the job. Jim, let's move on. Uh, Just in the last hour since we came on the air, your newspaper, the AJC, has released um, the, what I think is correct to uh, to say, an annual poll of legislative issues. We're in the, just finished the first week of the session. Look, can we go over some of the numbers? And are there numbers that, okay, so let me just run down them. And at any point that you all want to weigh in, just make make it, you know, just do it. Um, First, 52% 52% of Georgia voters polled approve of the job the Georgia legislature is doing. So, Jim, I'll give a comment on that and then get you all to weigh in. It's, this is completely contrary to the way the American people typically respond to polls about how they feel about Congress. Congress is lucky to get break 20% in terms of approval. Here in Georgia, a majority still thinks our legislature is doing a good job. It's the home team. When that, were you in the field? Uh, we were in the field January 6th through the 15th. So it was before they came into session. Right. I, I would I would withhold judgment on that number until after the session has ended. I, I think that uh, it's an election year and who knows what's going to come up between now and the end of session. So mm-hmm. 52 is a great starting point. Uh, we'll see how they end up. Right. Although I, I will say, too, that Georgia historically – uh, is a much more bipartisan uh, legislature than you see in Congress, which is so polarized. Yeah, um, yeah, I think that's an I think that's a very important point. And on top of that, too, uh, there hasn't been a third party or outside force pushing very negatively against the legislature in the last twelve months, at least. Right. Right. Yes. <laughs> you know, sure. we won't mention any names. <laughs> yeah. You know, fifty-nine so. percent uh, say the Georgia economy is good or excellent. Um, 
What's interesting about that, Jim, and we're going to talk about this a little more when we kind of break down a little what uh, the governor had to say yesterday in his state of the state, is that Brian Kemp, in asking for these big budget cuts, which are clearly going to become a contentious issue in the session, he's got to, on one hand, make the case that, yeah, our economy is booming, which Georgians seem to think is true, it's doing well, and on the other hand, say, yeah, but... Yeah, we but need it, these but, draconian but, yeah, cuts. Right, right. He, I mean, he's 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 got a, an auster, in essence, an austerity budget uh, proposal. Okay, I just thought that was interesting. No, 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 no it's it's one of the great con, the con, it's going to be one of the great contradictions of the of the session. Yeah, it's he's going to struggle with that. Fifty uh, percent say to keep the state income tax rate the same, Eric. Uh, by that, I assume the AJC asks people if they want to see the legislature enact another quarter percent cut as they did last session in the income tax rate, that too is going to be controversial during the session. Yeah. And apparently the people who respond to the poll say, don't do it. Well, 50, 50% means half think we should and half think we shouldn't. Okay. <laughs> so, but, but I think there are, there are legislators in particular in the House that want to you know, see an additional tax cut. Uh, okay, and, and but but we can and we, and I'm sure we'll talk about this more later. But 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 by by introducing yet another two thousand dollar pay raise for teachers across the board, uh, you kind of shut down that 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 talk because one one very much competes with the other. Yeah, right. That's three hundred fifty million dollars mm-hmm. uh, uh, to give that the teachers that raise. We think uh, Caesar sixty five percent, and this tracks a lot of other polling on the subject. Sixty five percent of Georgians polled say they support full expansion of Medicaid to cover all the state's poor. The, the governor and Republicans in the legislature have heard this number uh, time and time again, uh, and yet they argue against full expansion, and the waivers the governor has asked the feds to approve uh, call for a very limited expansion. And I wonder if, if the limited expansion requested by Governor Kemp really has helped these numbers, I mean, increased these numbers. I think you know when you talk about healthcare, it's a, it's I won't say it's a nonpartisan issue, uh, but it is a non-political matter for for Georgians. It was it was it was the 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 the, the number two concern of yeah. voters. I mean, it's real. It's real life. We we did polling on Medicaid expansion uh, uh, 10, 12 years ago, and up until the the time that uh, uh, I retired, and we were doing work work for Georgia Healthcare Foundation, Healthcare Georgia Foundation, and and there's always been Roughly two thirds, seventy percent support for Medicaid expansion. It, it's not yeah. th- these numbers are are, are very consistent yeah. over time. Yeah, mm-hmm. but I, I I think most I shouldn't say most people, but a good number of people don't understand when you say full expansion of Medicaid. They think okay, that's full expansion of health care, and people say yes, everyone should have health care. But what people sometimes don't understand is that that's a lot more complicated. You know, Medicaid is a government healthcare program. And so, yes, you, you, you want to provide healthcare for everyone, but it's a little bit more complicated. I'm, I'm interested in that too, Eric, because I've always wondered that very point. Do people really understand what Medicaid expansion means? Did you ever try to test their understanding of that, Beth? Uh, not specifically in, in our polling, but, okay. but I, I think that there is a, uh, that what, what Medicaid uh, Medicaid is shorthand for helping people uh, who are poor, who who have less means than than a lot of other people. And we figure people do understand that. And, you think and, they understand the difference between Medicare and Medicaid? 
Yeah, because if you uh, if if, if Medicare, you're not a senior, if Medicare expansion were popular, then Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders might be doing even better than than they are. So uh, now I, I think people generally do understand now maybe it's people 65 and over who understand the difference between Medicare and Medicaid. I just think the general population, not people that, you know, understand this stuff because, you know, they're paying close attention. They get Medicare, Medicaid, and health care all confused. Okay. Um, let's move on. Uh, Jim, uh, this is a state that, that where people really prize their personal liberties, and yet 90% support requiring everyone in a vehicle, back seats and front, uh, to wear uh, a seat belt. The legislature has that issue before them. Where, where, where do we think that's going this session? Uh, right, well, no, uh, just to be clear, right now uh, state law is that everybody in the back seat under, under, uh, under yes. 17 and under Thank has you. to wear. Thank you. Older people. Uh, it's 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 optional. Yeah. And there's a bill right now that's that would that, or there's a study, Senate study committee that's recommending that, you know, that what, what we ask in the poll, that everybody be required to wear seatbelt. Uh, one of our reporters, um, um, Mark Nisi or I'm sorry, David Wickert, uh, mm-hmm. asked uh, Jeff Duncan about this. And lieutenant uh, governor. He's lieutenant governor. And. Uh, it was a he. He got a fairly tepid response. You know, it's interesting, Caesar. The history of requiring seatbelts in the state legislature has been so fascinating to track. Back when Tom Murphy, we all remember this, when Tom Murphy was speaker, and there was a move to have anybody in a car wear a seatbelt, the driver to wear a seatbelt, he opposed it vehemently and put it and put it on the back burner, refused to let it go through. His, he had a personal reason. His daughter had been in an automobile accident and he believes was saved because she was not wearing a seatbelt and was thrown clear of the wreckage. And those, so those were days when you couldn't get people to wear a seatbelt. Right, mean, and the, <laughs> this was also in the face of, 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 of the period when the, the U.S. Department of Transportation began tying seatbelt use to federal funding yes, for, for, yeah. for highways. Yes. And so what happened was what the, the, the compromise that Speaker Murphy brokered was that, yes, he would have a seatbelt law that all, covered all sedans and station wagons, right. and no but pickup trucks. No pickup right? pick trucks. And it was much more exactly. recent. We only <laughs> finally got pickup uh, trucks, required seatbelts in pickup trucks not that long ago, right? Yeah. <laughs> well, I think, you know, now, so the key uh, operative phrase is way back when. And so if you think about where we are now, we're at least a generation, if not a generation and a half, into the culture of seatbelts being the law. Yeah. So you've got young people who only seen that. So they're used to it. They uh, but then if you're someone who's older, you, you know, and you get asked this question, you're thinking about your 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 grandchildren yeah. and your and your children and you're thinking, yes, they need to have their seatbelts on. Um yeah. Jim, here's one. I the numbers, I don't know what the margin of error on your poll is. Perhaps. Uh 3.1%. Okay, 3 plus percent. Um 64% of the people polled support casino gambling. A slightly smaller number, 57%, support legalized sports 
betting. I think that's interesting because it's much more likely, we think, for sports betting to pass this session than casino gambling. Uh, yeah, two things. I would say, you know, 64 and 57 are, pr- are pretty close. much close cl- right. close within the margin of error. But I would also say that sports betting is the new uh, new kid on the block People here. People don't understand it. And, and they're not, they, they may not be sure, exactly sure what it what it entails. It's This is the new product that was, that just jumped up really, uh, probably in September or so. And Eric, they, what, but, 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 go ahead. No, no, go, Caesar. I was going to say too. While people may not understand sports betting, they understand what a bookie is. Oh yeah, and and so there's you know probably this this notion that well you know is this going to what are the implications of having basically a legal bookie? I mean I think that may be part of the why. But Eric, a bit. we now have two incentives why sports betting might succeed this session. One is Tennessee, which has legalized sports betting. And just within the past week, Kentucky legalized sports betting as well. That's putting some pressure on Georgia legislators to want to move forward, I think. Plus the support of our sports franchises. Our four major sports franchises. franchises. And a governor who wants to fund pay raises for teachers. And 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 but the, the the sports franchises are important because in all this discussion about casinos that we've had over over the decades or so, you've never had any institutional support within Georgia back back the effort. I mean, the the casino yeah. uh, casino uh, money is all the interest has always been from New Jersey, New York, or Las Vegas, or California, but here we have four homegrown institutions. The Braves, the Falcons, the Hawks, and Atlanta United, who are pushing this. The, uh, I should program note, uh, Derek Schiller and uh, Steve Coonan are scheduled to come in here to do an interview with me uh, sometime next week, and then we'll put it on Political Rewind uh, probably the following week at some point. But it's interesting, uh, Beth, that uh, they're getting their people out. Billy Linville is the uh, guy who's pr- working hard on this issue. He's a lobbyist and a government affairs guy, and he's doing everything he can to get his people out front. They're going to be at the Atlanta Press Club talking about this. So this is a full-court press. And, and you have me here because I sometimes help you do your job. Derek Schiller is with the Braves. Yeah. And <laughs> Steve Kuhnan yeah. is with the, the Hawks. Hawks. Thank you. I just you figured are. more. most people knew sports, you know, and would know that. The, but the interesting don't. thing is going to be if you could separate the two, you know, because I think there's going to be an effort on the part of some to link the two. And you mean casino gambling and sports betting? Mm-hmm. Okay, we're going to watch it. Uh, Jim, you want to say any any one more? Or we can uh, go the, ahead. That last one, that last one, yeah. I think is important. Which we had seventy eight percent of 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 the people we polled uh, support legislation that would allow uh, judges or police to confiscate the guns of people who might be uh, about to do harm to themselves or others. Do we have pending legislation? Yes, we do. We do. We have a uh, – we have. there are about two dozen uh, uh, gun bills out there. Uh, there are par- a couple of Democratic bills. I think Mary Margaret Oliver is involved in yes. one that would that, – that would has a uh, has a traditional red flag bill. This, that's what these, these are called. Uh, and – but there is also – you ha- also have uh, State Representative Ken Pullen, a uh, Republican from Zebulon, who's got – who has got uh, legislation that would target any future laws that require those who are found to be a threat. Uh, uh, it, it, it's, it's your anti-red flag law. He says that if the feds pass red flag legislation if in Congress signed by the president, Georgia will automatically exempt itself from right. uh, that and, law. And, and, That's not going to go anywhere. No, but no. But I, I, here, here's what I, I, I would tell you is, is that 78 percent on, on a, a approval for a, a, a gun control law 
it's still, I still don't think that means it's going to move through the legislature. But to me, it is a signal that Republicans better be very careful about uh, any any pro gun legislation they they introduce. What do you introduce. think about that, Eric? Yeah, I th- well, I think the mental health issues are real, and I think people understand that, and I think you see that in the number. Okay. Well, but- and that's been the NRA's messaging over the years: is it's not guns, it's mental health issues. So the the public is is uh, understanding that, and this is this is a, a a common sense approach to trying to reduce. Gun violence. We thank the NRA for working on behalf of those who want to restrict guns in the hands of some individual. So, so, you know, so. you, you, take, you take the support take for you common get. sense wherever you can find it. All right, so, let's do this. Let's get our first break of the show out of the way. Jim, thank you for uh, breaking those numbers uh, right before we went on the air. It really gave us some, I think, meaty uh, 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 issues to talk about. And you're going to have more. We'll what have is it, more tomorrow? On Monday. We'll have more Monday. on Monday. Monday, we're going to see candidate numbers, apparently, right? Uh, could be. Yeah. Can't wait for that. All right, let's do this. Let's get a, a break out of the way. We'll be back with more in just a moment. Democrats say they are defending democracy. This is about the Constitution of the United States. Republicans say the case for impeachment is weak. The Senate must put this right. We must rise to the occasion. Now senators take on the role of jurors and decide if the president should be removed from office. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. Join us for live special coverage of the Senate impeachment trial of President Trump from NPR News. Join us for live coverage of the impeachment trial here on GPB starting at 1 p.m. on Tuesday. Support for 88.5 GPB Atlanta comes from monthly sustainers. And the Atlanta Opera presenting Strauss's scandalous masterpiece, Salome, featuring Jennifer Holloway, January 25th, 28th, 31st, and February 2nd at Cobb Energy Center. Tickets at atlantaopera.org. And Cigna. Cigna is committed to improving the health, well-being, and peace of mind of those they serve along with their communities, just like here in Georgia. Cigna, together all the way. Learn more at cigna.com slash take control. Welcome back to Political Rewind. A quick program note before we continue with our conversation uh, today. Uh, Remember, we've mentioned it a couple of times. I want to make sure we mention it today. Starting next Tuesday, uh, we will be presenting Political Rewind at 9 a.m. On Second Thought, wonderful show hosted by uh, Virginia Prescott, um, is going to be moving to uh, Friday at 11 in the morning, and we're going to fill the time uh, at 9 a.m. every day of the week, really. Monday, we have an MLK special, and that'll air at 2 o'clock in our normal time slot. But starting on Tuesday, you'll listen to Political Rewind if you listen to us in real time at 9 o'clock every morning, and we're going to make these folks who come in out of the generosities of their hearts and uh, have to uh, get up a little early to be on the show. But everybody seems to think that's okay, yeah? Yeah, that's fine. All right, good. <laughs> All right. Uh, I'm sorry, I, I heard uh, three people go We yet. will not be on the air at 2 o'clock because the impeachment trial starts on Tuesday and we'll be uh, carrying NPR's coverage of impeachment. Okay, got that out of the way. Let's move on. Jim Galloway, I thought there was a kind of an interesting contrast between two messages... That came out of Georgia Republicans in the last 24 hours. First, we had Governor Kemp's State of the State speech. And as you all pointed out in, uh, in the AJC today, for the most part, Governor Kemp uh, showcased rather moderate themes 
that he says are part of his agenda for a 2020 session. And uh, to really uh, soften whatever sharp edges uh, he might be in the Republican agenda, he brought Johnny Isaacson to the floor. Johnny Isaacson, popular across party lines, honored him, and among other things about Isaacson, said this. Right now, over 20,000 Georgians are living with Parkinson's disease, with new patients diagnosed every single day. And while treatable, Parkinson's disease, Parkinson's disease has no cure. I don't know about you all, but I want to change that. Thanks to the leadership of President Jerry Moorhead, we are creating a Johnny Isaacson professorship for Parkinson's research at the University of Georgia. Once recruited, this PhD researcher will develop better treatments for patients like Johnny, better medication, and a better quality of life. Uh, Jim, that's a lovely message that and reaches a across deal, and a huge deal. Jerry Moorhead, of course, being the president of the University of Georgia. I, I mentioned on the show yesterday, it's worth repeating today, that open microphones can sometimes get you in just a little bit of trouble. While that applause was going on after the announcement, uh, <laughs> Kemp turned to Speaker Ralston standing next to him and said, now we've just got to make it happen. <laughs> 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 okay, so... You think I'm right? I mean, here is Kemp giving out a pretty moderate, and in that case, a real warm and fuzzy sort right, of message. Right, right. Uh, one of his messages was, uh, was on, uh, he's got a big foster care uh, yep. package going, uh, uh, which, which, uh, which, which goes down well with female voters. And, uh, and you know, on, on the other side of that, he's got the kind of the, 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 the stick in that package, which was the gang violence. Yeah. And I want to talk about that separate from this. But, Eric, it was notable that the governor pretty well steered clear of the more partisan agendas that some conservatives, you know, some, the social issues that are certainly going to pop up, we think, in the session. But Governor Kemp stayed away from him in this speech. Yeah, they're, they're not, you know, the top priority issues for the governor. And what a governor lays out in their state of the state are what their priorities are. And this is the second year of his term. He had some priorities from the campaign that he followed through on last year. And now you're seeing, you know, has after a year of governing where his priorities are. And I, I wouldn't really look at this as a Republican speech or a Democratic speech. I would look at this as a Georgia speech. And, there you go. Yeah. Just uh, what he was uh, hoping I, I would, for. I, would, I, would, I don't know about uh, – Caesar needs to jump in here. But I would, I would say that that was a speech designed uh, – that speech was very much recognition that, uh, that the Speaker, Speaker Ralston's chief – uh, objective this session will be to retain the 15 seat margin that he's got in the house and which is which is primarily suburban votes and that's and it's and it's women i mean i mean i you know he it was a georgia speech but it was also a a, a husband and a father three women girls speech too yeah and i think he's thinking and he's looking forward to uh you know what's going to happen politically in 22 i think he that was all about the numbers i mean i'm just right. being now, candid, well, I, I, if, if the sole woman on the panel may be permitted to speak for a moment <laughs> oh come on <laughs> i just thought i'd pull rank for a second or two uh i i think the governor uh has some uh, leftover business from uh last year's session with the so-called heartbeat bill uh, and that is an issue that 
uh, had had affected him among uh, suburban Republican-leaning women. Uh, it will affect him again this fall. It will affect the Republican Party this fall. And I think you're exactly right that that this session is all about trying to protect the 15 remaining Republican seats in the House to keep them from flipping. Uh, and uh, you know we're we're going to face a pitched battle this fall. Uh, between both parties, both parties are are uh, moneying up and and well armed. But I just I just think that in the battle of ideas, uh, that it's going to take a lot more than uh, soft gauzy speeches to win back Republican. And, and we're going to get to that in a minute. Uh, to, to, to emphasize what what Beth is saying, that if I'm not mistaken, I I believe that House Bill 481, this is the, anti-abor- uh, the anti-abortion bill that, that a, a federal judge put a hold on. I think that's going to come to the courtroom in mid, mid-February while the, uh, yeah. while the legislature will be, will All be right. in, in town. All right. So I said I thought there were interesting contrasting messages in the last 24 hours. I think uh, a couple of you have laid out pretty well that Brian Kemp's message was one, among other things, uh, designed to make sure he can maintain the majority in the uh, Georgia House, he appointed Kelly Leffler to the Johnny Isaacson seat, presumably in part because he's hoping that Leffler will appeal to those uh, suburban women who are maybe on the fence right now. So after the camp speech yesterday, we get the first glimpse of Kelly Leffler's first TV spot. Let's listen. My first bill called to end impeachment. Kelly Leffler. My second bill supported killing the world's deadliest terrorist. Kelly Leffler, a businesswoman, not a career politician. China is attacking American jobs. Iran is attacking American troops. And Congress only attacks the president. It has to stop. I'm Kelly Leffler. I approve this message because it's time to get to work. So, uh, Eric, so Leffler wants to uh, defend the president in impeachment, which, of course, David Perdue will do. Uh, she talked about that. She talks about China. I don't think too many people are arguing with uh, the killing of Soleimani. What she doesn't say in that commercial is that among her first uh, votes, uh, not only were on the impeachment, but she uh, cast a couple of ballots uh, that were anti-abortion ballots as well. It, it's just an odd contrast with what the governor seems to be trying to get across right now. Well, she's talking about in that ad the things that she thinks are the most important. I mean, when you're in the United States Senate, you cast a lot of votes and you mm. don't talk about every single vote. You pick out the ones that are important. And right now, Kelly is still in the pro- – or Senator Leffler is in the process of introducing herself to a lot of people that don't know her. And in particular right now, uh, there's a lot of Republicans in the state that want to know who Kelly is and what she stands for. And I think that's what this message does. But what's interesting, I hear that. Um, And she didn't do it in the spot, but her her campaign team had put out a news release pointing out that, yes, among her first votes were two anti-abortion votes. Three of them. So, so it's not like she's hiding that, but she—it's not in that commercial, which is interesting well, to you, me, Beth. She's she's got a a, a tough road to hoe, mm. and uh, she clearly has to appease a Republican base that is rabidly anti-choice and uh, anti a lot of other progressive issues. Uh, on the other hand, there's this assumption that because she's a pleasant-seeming woman, that Republican women are going to vote for her. And I think you only have to look at the 
2018 election results in the 6th congressional district to realize uh, that Lucy McBath uh, won, fueled by uh, the defection of Republican-leaning suburban women, uh, and she defeated a Republican woman. So just having a woman on the ballot uh, is not enough to, uh, to win uh, voters back uh, who, are, who are voting on issues uh, not as much on gender. Caesar? I think, um, quite frankly, uh, this, I think we want to talk about this in a minute, but the, for her, I can bet you that the sooner the primary, the better. I mean, I just think, I just think, you know, she wants to be able to get past any sort of space and time. Well, remember, but she doesn't face a November. primary right, challenge. She doesn't. And, and I know we're going to talk about that later. You know what? For the let's qualifying talk, let's, let's, so, let's talk yeah, about but, it now. But go ahead, well, no, finish what you want to say. Apply to her, but I, I you know, I, in, a, I, in a way, it does, though. In a way, it well, does. and I love to hear how because my thinking was, even that's though fine. I was thinking that's about fine. the wrong thinking about no, 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 no. Is that is that I, I think you know I think about that TV show with a real Kelly Leffler stand up. I, I'm I just think at some she point, wants to get past Doug Collins. Yes, once she gets past, <laughs> I think once she gets past the pressure she's getting yeah. from right. the right and her that's party, right. I guess yes, we yes, might see a different. Her problem is her problem is that she doesn't know who's going to, to come at her from the right. And uh, an interesting thing happened uh, this week in that uh, currently Georgia state law, and we've talked about it here, is that state law says that a special election for the U.S. Senate, in, in, those, in that circumstance, you have to keep qualifying open until 60 days before the election, yeah. which would put qualifying, the end of qualifying, at Labor Day. All right. Okay, but now we have legislation that would change that so that Brad Raffensperger could 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 lump the qualifying for that race into the first week of March with all the uh, with with all the other races in the state. That would that 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 gives that gives that will give uh, right. Leffler a, a a good look at who she at her opposition uh, on the right and on the left. Assuming so and that was, it also so exactly. would keep yeah. any. Democrat who loses the primary in the seat to, in the uh, in the race against Purdue, that would keep any Democrat uh, who loses that primary from then running against her in November because qualifying would have already closed right. prior the, to, the, exactly. to the May twenty nineteenth right. primary. Exactly, and since the Democrats have such a small stable of you know candidates, they're going to probably need to go to the group that's running against Purdue to find someone what, to what? run against Leffler. Putting that aside, the question, <laughs> the question the, I think the question is, I guess my logic wasn't completely Yeah, you were, but we understood it. But, but, but to, to best point, the question really is, is which logic is being used, which is the primary logic? Is it to, is it to stop Democrats from being able to move over to the jungle race? Or is this about getting, you know, Leffler, Senator Leffler into the clear? As soon as possible. That's that's right. It actually accomplishes both purposes pretty well. Let's make sure we explain what we're saying here, Eric. If, in fact, the Raffensperger bill to have qualifying be end in the first week of – take place in the first week of March for the November jungle election, the Kelly Leffler uh, Isaacson seat, that means that a Doug Collins has to declare himself very soon. He cannot afford to sit back – and wait, he's going to have to start moving forward with a campaign apparatus within weeks, really. Right. And he'll be only able to qualify for one race. For one race. But here's, okay, so let me throw out some completely different thinking. How does it advantage, we understand that in a jungle election, 
you want to do the best you can, whether you're a Republican or a Democrat, to clear the field of opponents. You want to try to, you know, unify around a candidate because you want to avoid, uh, you want to try to get somebody elected as quickly as possible. Jim, it seems to me there's this perverse side of this, which suggests that the Leffler team, the Republicans, should welcome the idea of five or six Democrats jumping oh, oh, into oh, that no, second absolutely, race absolutely. and they extend wanna... the deadline as long as they can. They, well, and this is where the double-edged sword, sword comes in because they want they, they would love as many Democrats to jump right. into this race as possible. Uh, and splitting splitting that, you know, say if you take uh, 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 Stacey Abrams, uh, what, what, 47 percent, 48 percent, and then splitting that five ways, uh, they, they would love that. Uh, but at the same time, she doesn't you, because because this is a, a a so-called jungle primary. She also has to worry about her right flank. Yeah, and sure. she does. You know, she the last. You know, there's going to be a, a a GOP candidate to challenge her. What she's hoping not is that it's not somebody with with Doug Collins's profile and 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 any access to money. Even though she's yeah. you know she's Eric, what are you hearing about well Doug Collins up. in Republican circles? Is there an appetite for him out there? Really? You know, it, it, well, if you listen to Sean Hannity, but, you know, Sean Hannity's a, an entertainer. I, look, I think Doug is a tremendous member of Congress, and he did a really good job from my perspective as the ranking member of the Judiciary Committee. And I think he has a bright future in the House. And I think, you know, the governor, the governor had the right to pick who he thought should succeed Johnny Isaacson. He picked Kelly Loeffler. And I think that you know, as a Republican in this state, I think we need to rally around the governor's pick. I, I just want to have Eric develop I, my talking points. Caesar, was, Caesar <laughs> and then Beth. Uh, but I do need to point out, because you two are partners, business partners. Uh, so when I hear Eric say, we all know that Eric Tannenblatt can be one of the most powerful fundraisers in the South when he backs a candidate. I sort of, maybe I'm going too far with this, but it sounds to me like Eric would rather... Uh, use that power in the service of a Kelly Leffler than a Doug Collins, the way he just talked about Doug should stay in Congress where he's doing well, a great I'm a, job. I no, I'm, to... a, I'm a donor to Doug Collins. Yeah. I had oh, a yeah, fundraiser for Doug sure. Collins. Sure, yeah. and, and his role in the House. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Okay. I mean, that, that, was the, that was like the, the smoothest way to, 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 to tell someone to... Uh, to be quiet and sit down. <laughs> Kelly, Kelly are we, is wait, so wait, funny. Are we being unfair? Er, no, I, the governor had the right to choose. He chose. No, I, I support understand. my governor, okay. and I think he made a fine pick. Fine. I, I <laughs> want to come back for a second to the to the move by Raffensperger to, to move qualifying up, uh, and and we we won't know how this turns out until the year unfolds. But I think you have to be uh, uh, concerned about the law of unintended consequences because. Uh, Raffensperger also is the one who set the date for our super for our uh, presidential primary, uh, well after Super Tuesday, uh, perhaps knowing that Trump wouldn't be challenged, and perhaps thinking that that this would make the Democratic uh, primary irrelevant. Uh, and and I think that uh, given what's happening in the Democratic primary for for, for president right now, that uh, 
we may not have a, a settled candidate after Super Tuesday, which will make Georgia a much more relevant state yeah. uh, than perhaps uh, was intended when the date was set. Yeah, but but look on uh, on the on the Doug Collins thing, and and what Eric says is right. I mean, he's 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 got great standing within the party. Uh, I I have looked at him as more a, a potential future gubernatorial candidate than 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 uh, somebody who stays in Washington yeah, yeah. forever. But but w- when I'm looking at a candidate and when and who's deciding to run, the first thing I do is I look at his uh, family situation. Uh, He's married. He's got three kids. They're fairly small. One has special needs. And... That's that's a consideration you make when you when you cut bonds with your 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 job and you take the chance of running statewide. Eric, it does strike me that if you play long ball, which Doug Collins is still a young member of Congress can afford to do in the long run, he may be able to maintain a popularity within the Republican Party of Georgia by foregoing a divisive Senate race and, as Jim says, setting himself down the road perhaps for a gubernatorial race after whatever. The point is, does he really want to start a schism within the Republican Party of Georgia? Well, I would, I would hope not, but I think you're, you're absolutely right. Uh, if he gets on board and supports the governor's nominee or selection in, in Kelly Leffler, I think people will remember that yeah. and appreciate but, yeah. that. But, but it's a Republican Party that's diminishing in power yeah. statewide. And so there, there may not be many windows of opportunity for Doug Collins to jump in uh, and feel like he's got a fighting chance of winning statewide. And, and I got to piggyback on that. And, that, and, you know, after looking at the commercial for Senator Leffler and having this conversation and hearing this discussion, I truly believe that it's less about boxing out Democrats from jumping into this race than it is about getting Senator Leffler in the clear. Cesar Mitchell, you get the last word of this uh, segment of Political Rewind because we've got to get our final break of the show out of the way. Let's do that. We'll be back with more in just a moment. What does it mean for your health if a cancer screening is 90% accurate? Or when a lawyer says there's a 99% chance a defendant is guilty. This week on Science Friday, how the math behind everyday decisions can be misread and misused. Kit Gates, author of The Math of Life and Death, joins us on the next Science Friday from WNYC Studios. Join us for Science Friday this afternoon at 3 on GPB. Support for 88.5 GPB Atlanta comes from our listeners. And the Atlanta Symphony Orchestra, coming up a celebration of Beethoven's 250th birthday with a performance of his one and only violin concerto, January 16th, 18th, and 19th. Details at ASO.org. Weekdays on GPB are filled with news and information, but at night, kick back and enjoy the eclectic mix of music from Georgia State University students on Album 88. This is 88.5 GPB Atlanta. We're back on uh, Political Rewind, a spirited panel on a Friday show, I have to say. Um, one last note on, on, on Leffler, Jim, before we move on in the last few minutes of the show. She did something pretty uh, strategically smart this week, or her team did. Uh, she was already said she'll put $20 million of her own money into a race. Now there's a pack being established that will have the ability to raise money that she can dole out 
to Republican candidates for other offices, which is a good way to well, win people over. Well, yeah, it's, yeah, it's, uh, <laughs> money, money talks. In, money in, can in, buy in, you love. Yeah. But, but you know, it, you you raise an interesting point, and and I mean, we're, on the Democratic side, we're watching Michael Bloomberg and Tom Steyer uh, kind of kind of make their moves. Uh, you know, Bloomberg could be a force in the Georgia primary on the twenty fourth. It's going to be really hard. It just occurred to me, it's going to be hard for Republicans to point their fingers at Bloomberg or in Steyer. And 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 not hurt uh, uh, Ms. Leffler. That's an well, interesting. That's, uh, I, I think there's a little bit of a difference. Bloomberg and Steyer are not raising money, and they've made that perfectly clear. They're writing their own checks. Kelly did say she's willing to put money into it, but she's raising money. I've been to three fundraisers for her now, and people are supporting her like they do other candidates that have run for office. So she's got financial support behind her. It's not just her own money. Okay. Uh, It's interesting to hear you say, I've got to divert to think about Bloomberg being a force in the March 24th election. Obviously, it's true, but he's not competing in Iowa or New Hampshire. We know how well that went when Rudy Giuliani said he would start his campaign in Florida. And I want to say that I, in 1988, was on the Al Gore Escape from Iowa tour of the South because Gore decided not to compete in Iowa either. And we know how that went for him, Cesar Mitchell, not well. I I know we're not talking presidential today, but I think there's one interesting point to point out about uh, Bloomberg, and that is that uh, through his uh, philanthropies over the years, he has, uh, his his, uh, philanthropies have funded uh, a lot of, of good work in cities around the country, a lot on, on uh, climate change uh, and on, on just good governance, how to run a city. Caesar, you know this because Absolutely. of the work he did in Atlanta. Mm-hmm. And so uh, I, I'm skeptical of, about his chances nationally, but he also comes into the race not just with a ton of money, but with a network of mayors around the country who have their own political operations uh, that could help him. It won't be the case in Atlanta because Mayor Bottoms is supporting Biden. But I, I think don't don't rule him out yet, even though his chances right. are He also slim. says he'll spend a billion dollars, whether he's the candidate, the Democratic candidate or not. That's got to send a chill up uh, Donald Trump's spine, I would think. Caesar, let me just take a couple minutes because you as a chill up my spine. (laughs) (laughs) As a former president of the Atlanta City Council, and we we have to say for transparency, as someone who ran against uh, as a candidate for the the election that that Keisha Bottoms won, what do you make of the fact this feud going on right now in the city of Atlanta about the mayor deciding that she has the independent right to issue an executive order? establishing an inspector general that oversee misconduct, corruption, which, of course, is pointed during the legislative session at, at uh, heading off a, a possible state takeover of Atlanta, Jack, Hartsfield, Hartsfield, Jackson, which is why it's a statewide issue. The city council has been working on it. They're not happy with the way she's handled it. What the heck is going on there? Well, I guess this is one of those occasions where it helps to be a lawyer and you can argue both sides. Um, <laughs> um, I, I, it, it, it's, it's a little messy. I'll just be candid with you. Uh, one might argue, if you if you were maybe looking at it through the lens of, of Mayor Bottoms, that it was very important this week to come out with a, a strong ethics right. uh, anti-corruption pronouncement. Uh, and maybe the executive order is a way to do that. Uh, 
the executive order really has no import, quite frankly, because executive orders are done essentially to bridge yeah. the executive branch over to the next council meeting. Yeah, Eric, the mayor's uh, power to uh, issue executive orders that have lasting impact in the city code is non-existent, right? It's temporary. Right. Right. Yeah. If, if, if I could, if I could uh, uh, so point out side that uh, the, the uh, uh, 12 hours after she issued that order, uh, she was at the uh, uh, Georgia Chambers Eggs and Issue Breakfast. Uh, uh, and then from there, she went to the floor of the uh, to, to the to, to make an appearance uh, at the state house with David Ralston. She's doing her work this session, even in the very first days of the session, Beth, to try to cultivate the sort of relationships that will slow down this what is now becoming an annual effort for a state takeover of the airport. So, oh, I'm sorry. uh, That's okay. I I applaud her for taking taking the steps she's taking to improve relationships with the state. uh, I, I, she was not my candidate in the mayor's race. Uh, I'm sorry, Caesar, you weren't also, but <laughs> I, of course I, we I still get that. along fine. <laughs> uh, and, and I think one of the uh, the issues that had that informed my decision back in 17 was was the whole issue of ethics. And so I, I think that uh, the city still has some work to do. Uh, the way she handled this in terms of executive order appears to have, have set up a messy situation between the executive office and the council office. So. Uh, I, as, a, as a resident of Atlanta, I'm just hoping that that the that city leadership can continue to move forward on on addressing a problem area that, that needs addressing. Caesar, a messy relationship between the council yeah. and the mayor. When have we ever seen that before in the city of Atlanta? <laughs> so, so a couple of points I'll make, and I'll, I'll try to be brief about these points. Number one, we're talking inside the bubble. We're, we're five percenters. Uh, the average uh, citizen watching this on Channel 2 or even reading it in the AJC to the extent that they even understand uh, the issues in a granular way, it won't it, – this, okay. this will make Fair sense enough. to them. Yeah. But, 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 but I think to Beth's point, uh, when I first saw the executive order, what my initial thought was – actually, I sent a note to someone and said, oh, wow, the, you all are doing some really smart coordinating together as a council and as <laughs> the mayor because this is an important moment to get this message out and an executive order that has no value. Uh, but I think it you have to consider if you're the mayor what, to what degree you're damaging your relationships going forward right. with – with the council. Okay. Who got so anybody want a last word on that before I move on for one last item? All right. I want to, and I'm going to get you all, give you at least a couple seconds each to weigh in on this. I want to close the show today on a really positive note, if it's okay with you. I f- was truly moved when I read this week that New Birth Missionary Baptist Church in South DeKalb County is giving $1.3 million to the residents of their community who cannot afford to pay medical bills, hospital bills. uh, The AJC article uh, written by Sheila Poole talks about a woman who got a $3,000 check in the mail and was stunned, but it came from new birth to let her pay off medical bills that she could not afford. I, Eric, it's just I wanted to take a minute to say there is goodness in this community, even at a time when our politics has become so dark and so troubling. I was really impressed by that. Absolutely. And it also talks to the value of nonprofits and churches and synagogues and the role they play yeah. in the community. And it's not all about government. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, this is something that's, that you see happening more and more. And, and, but to me, it also kind of uh, – it's – 
it's kind of an, a, a community uh, realization of the problem that we've got in in affordable health care. I think, uh, and and yeah, these are these are these are band aid situations, but it, it it really marks the importance. I think. I, I'm sorry. To, that's it. We are completely out of time for today's show. I have just enough time to thank you all for being here today. Thank you, listeners. Two quick notes again. Monday, we have a special edition, an MLK edition of the show, which talks about Reconstruction and Jim Crow and how black people overcame that horror. And then Tuesday, tune in for the first live edition of Political Rewind at 9 a.m. See you then.